Hi, everybody. Leslie Manukin here with Health Freedom Defense Fund with another edition of our conversations on health freedom. And we have a super special guest here today. And he's special because he's a good person, an amazing man, but also because of the experience that he has had. And it is not an experience I would wish on any other human being, in particular, another parent. As a mother myself, I can't imagine the pain and the horror of losing a child. Scott is going to tell us about not only losing a child, but how that happened to him and his family. I just want to welcome Scott to the show. And Scott, is it Scara? Did I say that pro- properly? Uh, Shara. Shara. Okay. I apologize. Um, it's, it's an honor to have you here with us and to share this incredible story of your family's experience so that we can help others understand why what we stand for, you and I, is so incredibly important and a truly timeless ideal, that of health freedom. So Scott, will you just tell us a little bit about, you know, a little bit about yourself and your background and um, why we're even talking today? Sure, thanks for having me, Leslie. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, so uh, you know, my background is uh, as, as a dad, you know, obviously I was the dad of, of Grace. Uh, Grace was our 19 year old daughter who had Down syndrome that was killed by, by a hospital in Wisconsin. Um, you know, most of my life, uh, I have been a business owner and I still am a business owner, but because of Grace's death, I, I have turned over the business to the guys that have been working for, were with me for years. And I've been training them for years, but um, the reality is I don't have time to run the business anymore. I've been working on Grace's case uh, upwards of 80 hours a week for um, over seven months now. And there's just uh, so much to do. There's so much research that that I had to do to to share the story. And, you know, we we just uh, started the legal process and we started a charitable foundation. Yeah, just there's there's a lot, lot to do to uh, not only honor Grace, but honor um, honor our Lord. We see Grace's death um, through the eyes of Genesis fifty twenty, which is uh, paraphrased. You what you meant for good, uh, or what you meant for evil, I meant for good, so that many people will be saved. And we see Grace's Grace's life. I mean, Grace. <laughs> just a little bit about Grace. I mean, she, uh, as I said, she was nineteen. She had Down syndrome. She was on the uh, high functioning and a Down syndrome in that she could read and write. My wife uh, did a great job homeschooling her. And uh, so I did the things dads do, like I taught her how to drive a car. Uh, Grace had a, a fantastic sense of humor. Uh, she was just, she was an, a, just a funny kid. Um, there's you know so many stories I can tell about Grace. I'll just tell you one quick one so you have a sense of of her sense of humor. Well, she deer hunted with me so she could shoot a rifle. Uh, she uh, one time we were in the deer stand. She said, "Dad, I have a joke for you. You got to consider this is you know most people think of Down syndrome children as happy kids, but she was a happy kid. She she was a lover, but she was also very smart. And so she said, "Dad, I have a joke for you." And uh, I said, "Okay, what's your joke?" She said. Well, uh, where do bees go to the bathroom? So I said, I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom? And she said, the BP station. So it just gives you, I mean, a sense of her. And you know, she she called me earthly dad. She called my wife earthly mom. Uh, so she had a sense of what her relationship was with her heavenly father. And, you know, it's easy to, to tell the story from the point of view of honor and grace, but the story has gotten substantially bigger than grace. Um, because we see it has uh, worldwide impacts because of of what it means. So technically, we're in the hospital, the hospital killing lanes of the medical tyranny um, fight, and you know I'm awake to that now. When let me when, ask you, Scott, I I, I want to interrupt there just because I want to um, ask you something specifically about this. Your daughter was admitted to the hospital in September. October when October 6th last year of 2021 right up until that point did you ever think that a hospital was an unsafe place for you or any of your family members 
Absolutely not. I, I would have told you beforehand that I would have had a healthy distrust, but not to the point that it was unsafe. You know, so uh, like a common belief to say that, uh, you know, a hospital is not a place to get well, you know, you get well at home, you know, because they're constantly getting you up at night, you can't sleep and, you know, you got to pay attention. Um, so the best person to take care of their own health is yourself. So, I mean, I believe that before going in, but I would have never thought in 10,000 lifetimes that they would have an agenda to, to take people out. Um, so now I would say the best way I can say this is from a host who interviewed me last week. And so after he heard Grace's story, he said, uh, it's not safe to be hit by a car anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's because obviously if you get hit by a car, you're going to have an ambulance ride. You're probably unconscious. And when you get to the hospital, you don't have control of your choices anymore. And odds are, um, especially if you hit certain parameters, like if you're Christian, unvaccinated, uh, disabled, or elderly, I mean, those are the low-hanging fruit right now that they're taking out. And, you know, that's why one reason I have all the, the time investment with that research, because I, I've proved all this stuff now. And so, I, I mean, I, I feel like I just want to shout from the rooftops every day to wake people up. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing. I've been on over 150 programs already, Leslie. That's, <laughs> It's a big deal to me. This is huge what we've discovered. Now, what about up until the beginning of 2020? Did you have any kind of a distrust of federal health agencies? Did you have any reason to believe that, um, you know, what was your sort of relationship and perspective on, say, CDC, FDA, NIH before this whole um, COVID lockdowns and crisis occurred? I would would say I it's similar to a hospital. I had a healthy distrust for the government. I mean, I I would have not trusted the government with anything, but not to the point where where they would um, be creating a narrative. Uh, I would have never thought that. Now I've gone completely opposite and say the, the single most important thing that I've learned through all of this is. Our government, including the NIH, CDC, all of it, is, is totally corrupt. Uh, that is by far and away the single most important thing that I have learned. And you know that it, most people are still in the area that I was before I've learned this, which is, you know, you probably have a healthy distrust. But I mean, I'm telling you bluntly, they are corrupt down to the core. And so that's where my belief is today. You know, Scott, um, you know, we had to cancel this a couple of weeks ago. We were um, scheduled to do this conversation and um, most people won't know, but I actually was called away to a family medical emergency. My mother um, was very sick. She had a bladder infection and we were terrified about her going to the hospital because of this, because we were, I've already had my father-in-law died at the hands of the hospital a couple of months ago. So last September and it's very clear to me that once you are in that system, and I've had many physicians, very prominent physicians tell me, no matter what you do, do not go to the hospital. And <clears throat> it's not a situation that any of us relishes, right? We don't wanna be in this position, but what you say about the, um, our, our health agencies and our hospital system being corrupt is absolutely accurate. You know, I've been studying this stuff for more than 20 years and, this corruption and the co-opting of what we call healthcare, it's not about health, right? It's about, um, it's about pharmaceuticals and wealth um, is, is so summary at this point that it's really hard for most people to fathom, especially because they are just being shouted at you know, through the televisions and other media outlets with the pharmaceutical industry narrative constantly. And it's, it's hard to imagine just how bad it is, but corrupt is the absolute and only descriptor we can use at this point. So Scott, why don't we, you tell us about, you know, what happened, why you went to the hospital with Grace and how things unfolded in September and October of 2021 for your family. So, you know, part of the, the healthy distrust is we were prepared for COVID. So, you know, I, you know, I knew COVID was, was something, but I didn't um, really think of it as anything we wouldn't walk through. But I mean, I thought, well, let's be prepared. So we had all the frontline doctors 
uh, things at home. We had ivermectin. Uh, so we were prepared just because that's, that would be my, my uh, tendency is that I'm not going to rely on waiting till you get sick. I like to advance prep and, you know, study things that are alternative. So that, that fits with the healthy distrust. So we had everything we needed at home. Uh, Grace, as best as we can tell, got COVID around September 28th. We tested her with a home test October 1st and it tested positive. We still didn't think anything of it because she was, she was doing fine. Um, we had her, as soon as September 28th came along, we got her on ivermectin right away. Uh, without even knowing, we just thought, well, let's just do it. It's not going to hurt anything. Uh, she had been on vitamins before that. And um, so I just thought we'd walk right through it. We found out because of the fact that I went into a different hospital three days after Grace died and just about died the first night. You know, so my, my, um, <coughs> my, my, um, analytical desires wanted to figure out, well, why did Grace and I end up in the hospital when my wife's symptoms were worse, but she never had low oxygen. Grace and I both ended up with low oxygen saturation. And Dr. Chetty, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him yet, but he's a South African doctor who, I mean, this, this is a guy who paid the price. He's a lot like you. I mean, there's people that are in the know and it's because they have spent their, their lives uh, studying and figuring things out. And so he discerned with the Delta variant that if you had a genetic disposition to clot or and produce inflammation, it would likely end up with low oxygen saturation. And I knew I had both of those conditions pre-COVID. And so likely Grace inherited those from me. And that's why we ended up in the hospital. So you know, we took her to the hospital because we perceived oxygen saturation as an emergency, which of course it is. Um, but they prayed EY on my perception and my wife's perception of an emergency. It was really mine because my wife had COVID. So I, I was the one that you know, I took Grace to urgent care, took the ambulance ride from urgent care to the emergency room and all of that. And ultimately, um, if I would have known then what I know now, we would have probably still went to the emergency room. But when they recommended admitted into the hospital, I would have said absolutely not. And they would have been... Um, uh, they would have sent us home with a prescription for oxygen and steroid. And I'm 100% certain Grace would be alive today if I would have made that decision. And I say that because, as I mentioned, I went into a different hospital three days after Grace died. And that was a hospital that did not follow a government mandated protocol. And they saved my life. They turned me around in 24 hours and I just about died the first night. And I can't say enough about them. And so that's why I say Grace would have been, a, been alive if we would have just uh, not admitted her. So ultimately, and we chose to admit her. And, you know, the first day was was pretty normal. I just was expecting a, a little vacation with my best buddy. And it... Um, there's a there's a couple of examples. One I want to go through specifically is that the so the first day in the hospital was October seventh. Seventh, the second day was October eighth. Uh, the pulm, pulmonary doctor came in at eight o'clock and said you're going to have to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that recommendation based on? And he said, well, we did a blood gas draw last night and it showed that Grace is not doing well. I said, what time was the blood gas draw done? And he said, he told me, and I said, well, myself and two of the nurses had just got done at that time wrestling with Grace over a period of two hours to get her oxygen set up. They had her on a regular cannula to start with, which she did fine with. And, you know, as I studied after Grace died, realized, I mean, that's all she ever needed, if that. Um, but then they forced a, uh, high flow cannula, which Grace did not like because it's shooting air up your nostrils at 40 miles an hour. So then we worked on getting a BiPAP situated and they only had adult masks. So Grace had a CPAP machine. I had it in the room. So I showed them, uh, what she's used to. And they did a great job at that point, uh, getting her fitted with the right mask. And then she settled down, but they took the blood gas draw during that window and so I told him, I don't think those numbers are objective based on what I just told you. And so I'd like to have the numbers retaken. So they did that and Grace was fine. Um, 
So we dodged the ventilator bullet then. But I mean, again, what was my what was my thought process? I like your questions there. What was your thought process before? What is it now? So at that moment, my thought process on a ventilator was it's just a tool in the tool chest because I believe President Trump unknowingly got the whole country to buy into the idea that ventilators, we had a ventilator shortage for all things, right? You know, so it just seemed like, okay, well, it's just the tools. But then I asked him the next question, which got me digging. I said, if Grace needs to go on a ventilator, what's the prognosis? And he said, only 20% of people walk out alive. The attending nurse started crying. And so I started asking her questions. Ultimately started, I had my laptop in the room. I started researching. I called a doctor friend um, and came to the conclusion that only 15% of people walk out alive. And most of them die from complications of a ventilator in the first year. And way more important is a ventilator isn't even a legitimate tool with COVID. Uh, you know, they call it COVID pneumonia. Well, that's really, a, uh, I, I think that's a scare tactic. I mean, it's an inflammation and it's not, it should never be treated with a ventilator. So, you know, just, so now I knew well, we're not gonna do a ventilator. Um, you know, after Grace died. And you know, so now during during the next several days while Grace was still alive, they asked my wife and I four different times for a pre-authorization or a pre-approval to put Grace on a ventilator just in case. And they framed it that, well, you know, these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. And so we rejected it every single time, uh, knowing because I had done the research. I mean, this, it's crazy to be put on a ventilator. Um, but ultimately, after Grace died, I did the, the homework as to what is the financial gain to the hospital, because it seemed so strange. And I found out that the, you know, it's, a, it's approximately a $300,000 payday if they convince the patient or their family to put, put them on a ventilator. I mean, so, it's, you know, you start getting woken up. I, I'm getting woken up in real time while I'm in the hospital with Grace. Uh, I, I ended up getting kicked out on October 10th. Um, and then my daughter, Jessica became a replacement advocate. My daughter, or my wife had COVID, so she couldn't, uh, we had, we ended up having to negotiate. I had to hire an attorney to negotiate against the hospital attorney, um, to get a replacement advocate in, even though Grace had a right to an advocate under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And as you know, they are using COVID to create this shroud of secrecy. So, you know, one of the unique things about our case is we were there. They killed Grace while we were there. Um, you know, and the other unique thing is we're going to get into when we go through her cause of death uh, is that most people are taken out in hospitals with COVID with remdesivir and or a ventilator. Well, neither one of those was ever used on Grace. She was taken out with a, another way. And one of the reasons I'm motivated to tell this story is because this other way that I'm going to describe is going to become the standard of care in the United States. It's already the standard of care in the UK and it's state sanctioned. And this is coming to the United States and we have to all be wise to this uh, because you... You can't, you cannot believe how corrupt these people are. Go ahead, Leslie. Well, I think it's partly corruption, but I think there's something deeper. And I think this is a really important thing to unpack. <clears throat> it's very interesting that they know that at most 20% of people who are ventilated actually survive the procedure. Some estimates are that it's as low as 10%. And so I, and maybe we should, I should ask you this question later, but I think it's really important. Do you really think it's only about money? And I oh, ask not this at all. I think it's, it's so important in particular in the, in the context of your story, because she was a disabled young woman. And there are those factions in our society who deem that those who have disabilities are um, just a, a, a suck on our society. And I'm just wondering what you make of that. Is that where you went, that they were trying to get rid of somebody who they deemed, somebody deemed was not productive? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I mean, this is what we're currently working on. So uh, at first, 
So it was a progression. At first, I thought it was simply medical malpractice. You know, we knew already, Grace died on October 13th. We already knew on November 8th that she was killed uh, because of the med combinations. Um, then uh, we had requested, we sent all of our research to the hospital. We requested a meeting with the CEO and the doctor, thinking that they would want to know what happened so that they could change their protocol and, you know, and, and ultimately they they rejected the meeting. Well, then I started digging more and then uh, I filed a complaint against the hospital and the doctor to the state agencies that regulate both. Both did investigations. And if you look at Grace's website, which is ouramazinggrace.net, if you look under the tragedy tab, I have about 70% of my research posted. You know, So I sent them all of that and hundreds of pages more be, you know, I'm analytical. I'm a you know, my old my old uh, business, and I still legally I'm a CPA. So I mean, I I am I think like this. So I mean, I analyzed everything, I summarized it, I put it in reports, and had a doctor help me, and ultimately sent it all to the hospital. Well, then when they rejected the meeting, I sent these. Then I sent complaints, and then the the state departments each did an investigation and said both the doctor for the doctor investigation and the hospital for the hospital investigation, they did nothing wrong. I could hardly believe it. So then it dawned on me, well, this is way bigger than money. The government is using the money to get the hospitals to do their bidding. And when they do something wrong, the government is now investigating the government. So they have to give them a clean pass. Okay, so then that led to Dr. Elizabeth Belit, um, it talks about attenuated care. So I thought, well, this could be, you know, they're, they're rationing care. Uh, you know, in, in, you know, the under COVID, they made up all kinds of lies. I mean, the hospitals are always full and, you know, all these things. So, okay, well, they have to ration care. You know, that's how you triage, right? Okay, so that made sense. But then you get this, the, the um, clean report from the state agencies. Well, then it went into, I wonder if this is a genocide. And I started looking into that in a lot of um, detail because I, I wanted to see what was going on with the hospital records from that perspective, from a biased perspective. And so I, re, I, I uh, reanalyzed all the records and found out in the 22 doctor's reports that were issued during Grace's stay, they mentioned she had Down syndrome 36 different times. Uh, they mentioned that she was unvaccinated. They mentioned she's Christian. And they mentioned that our family was following the frontline doctor's misinformation campaign. So then, okay, so then you think, all right, so now there's a bias. There's a clear bias here. Um, and then I started looking at, at things as to what's really going on. 67% of children with Down syndrome are already aborted. Uh, how does this fit into the narrative of all disabled? And the statistics started to come out uh, roughly five weeks ago was the first article that was credible that I read that uh, disabled women that went into the hospital with COVID were 11 times more likely to die in the hospital versus non-disabled women. And, you know, of course, the elderly were worse than that. So then we've been working on right now, we've been researching it now for a couple of weeks. We have well over 100 hours into this project to see how does this compare to the Holocaust of Nazi in Nazi Germany? And it is an eerie comparison. In fact, it's substantially worse. Uh, so what that has all led to is uh, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, uh, where there is a, um, this is not, this is all orchestrated as world population control. That's where all the research has gone. And, you know, I'm just a dad. I would have never thought, you know, people like you know what I'm self-discovering in real time. <laughs> you know, so I, I didn't know any of this even existed. But now that I see it all, it fits like a glove. And yeah, I can drill that down. Uh, you know, it's at the point where I can talk about it. We've got enough research in that I can talk about it with a fair degree of accuracy. I don't have, we don't have it perfect yet, but that's a great question. So <clears throat> why don't you tell us one thing that as you were speaking a little bit about what happened, you mentioned that 
you knew by the eighth that she was going that she'd been killed, but she didn't die till the thirteenth. Did I understand that correctly? No, we knew on November eighth. She died October thirteenth. Oh, November eighth. Okay. No, yep, November eighth. So we had. Um, I mean, I could see God's hand in this so many ways, but one way was how fast we got the records. Uh, you know, people wait for months to get the records. We had the records in days and then started analyzing. We got the records on November 3rd. By November 8th, we had gone through everything and started summarizing. Actually, we had all the summaries done then because we just worked, myself and that doctor, I mean, we just went into it and just worked uh, full time and went through everything and studied it. And so then just, wrote, wrote the reports. So just so our viewers fully understand Will you walk us through from the time she went in the hospital until she, the day that she died, what happened? Can you tell us what were her oxygen levels that were sparking this extreme concern and interest in putting her onto a ventilator? Um, well, what, that, were they when, a what were they when, they when you retested? What was the sequence of the different drugs? Because I know that they gave her a bunch of drugs that they never should have given and that they also, um, sign certain paperwork without consulting with you. And I'd just like you to walk through because it is one of the most glaring and horrific stories I've ever heard. And I think if there is a, if there's a, a perfect illustration of why health freedom is so important and why we need to remind doctors and hospitals that they work for us and that they must be held accountable, it is your story. And perhaps okay. my father-in-law's story, because as soon as we started asserting any kind of interest about the treatment that he was receiving, they silenced us. Uh, they literally put a wall and wouldn't speak to us anymore. It was just, it was incredible to me. And uh, the other thing they did, which I wonder if they did this to Grace, did they put a yellow star, a card with a little yellow star on the door jam of her room to um, denote that she is, was unvaccinated? Because they did that to my father-in-law. Uh, interesting. Yeah, anyway, so walk us through all of that kind of stuff. Okay, Scott? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, they called it out in her chart that she was unvaccinated. The yellow star is interesting because of that's, you know, how they marked the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. Um, so that's, uh, anyway, so you asked about what were the oxygen numbers. That's a great question. The oxygen numbers, when we took her to the hospital, were in the high 80s. Uh, so, they, you know, now in, in hindsight, I see that really wasn't that bad. Um, but that's what motivated us to go. You know, then what were they in the hospital is a fantastic question because what happened on, so I went through October 7th was the first day, October 8th, the highlight was the, the ventilator request, October 9th, uh, the um, Grace wanted to eat, so I started feeding her. The nurse came running in and said, you can't do that. And this, this gets to the oxygen question. I said, well, what's the reason? She said, well, her oxygen saturation is only 85%. And you know, I, I suspected I was going to get COVID in the room. So I had all of my COVID materials, which was and which included my own oxygen saturation um, pulse ox. So I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in and asked if my finger meter was accurate. She said, yes, it, yes, it is. So then I said, well, what is the reason my meter's reading 95 and yours is only reading 85 and she said because the leads get sweaty and so then I said well if that's the case why don't you proactively change out these leads every three to four hours or whatever it takes so you have an accurate reading given this is the primary statistic you're using to make recommendations for my daughter's care and she snottily responded you should just be thankful you caught this and so uh, what were the oxygen numbers? I, I can't answer that, but I can tell you uh, we were monitoring it. So myself and my daughter, Jessica, and at, at uh, hour in 25 minutes before Grace died, the finger monitor read 93%. The, ho the hospital reported Grace's oxygen at 44%. And we have the proof that I'm not going to go through the details here because it's part of our legal case, but the the meter that they used to record the 44% was not even connected. You know, so what was the number? You know, I just, they have an incentive, they have an incentive to lie and cover up the lie so that, you know, they can justify the, the crazy things that they're doing. Um, I got kicked out on the 10th. 
the 11th, basically, we had no advocacy. We had 44 hours total without advocacy, but on the 11th, Jessica was able to go in for a couple of hours. And then on the 12th, which is the day before Grace died, she started at 11 o'clock in the morning and stayed through the night. Uh, Grace had a good day on the 12th. Uh, before she went to bed, Jess called her two boys, Grace's nephews. Grace sat up in the bed and through the BiPAP, hollered, hi, boys. You know, just thought at this point that, well, Grace is just kind of, you know, she's normal, typical Grace, but she's kind of sleepy. Um, she recorded uh, Grace's oxygen at 98, 99% the entire night. She thought she's kind of sleepy, but then we find out after the fact that the reason she's sleepy is because, and this is, there's three causes of death. So this is the first one. They put Grace on a sedation med called Presidex starting October 9th. And so that's why she's sleepy. During the 44 hours that we didn't have advocacy, they increased the dosage seven different times. And just to cut to the quick, Presidex has a package insert, which all these drugs do. And it says specifically, adverse reactions associated with infusions greater than 24 hours. Remember, she's on it four full days before her last day. In duration include ARDS, respiratory failure, and agitation. According to Grace's death certificates, the first cause of death is acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia. Hypoxemia, as you know, is low oxygen, which is also caused by using Presidex. So they directly caused her death with the sedation med. But you know, that's the in the scheme of things, that's the lowest, that's that's the easiest one. The other ones get more complicated, but they're more egregious. Um, so that Presidex, you know, as we learned about Presidex, we, we understand now it's a, a med that is used to knock people out for surgery. The nurses who use it only use it for three hours. So why did they even put Grace on it? Well, <clears throat> she didn't need it because she was agitated or anything. There's no, Grace is just a calm kid. Uh, they put her on it because number one, they get more money. As soon as somebody goes on Presidex, the room is classified as ICU, even though Grace never changed rooms and the care never changed. But the amount of money the hospital received changed as soon as you, they put her on Presidex. Second of all, when you go on Presidex, you can't just take yourself out if you're an adult or a parent can't just take the, the child out anymore because it's called against medical advice because they're sedated. Uh, and third, and most important, they're using it to set up a ventilator. So remember I told you they they pressed us four different times after that first time for a pre-authorization for a ventilator. Well, the person has to be sedated in order for a ventilator. So they, they set this whole thing up because their goal is a ventilator. So that's why they had her on Presidex for so long. The medical malpractice nurse who reviewed the record said that they chemically restrained Grace and that's how they killed her. Uh, so now we get in, we turn the page to Grace's last day. And this is where, this is really what you want me to focus on because it, it's, it really tells the tale as to um, what the conditions are really like. And remember we were there. So, I mean, we, this isn't that we discerned it from the records. You know, the records support what we found. So at, at roughly eight o'clock in the morning, the doctor called my wife and I at home. And he, the purpose of his call was to follow up on a call from the evening before. And so he told us he'd call us in the morning. And so he wanted to know our decision on a ventilator. And we told him no for the fourth time. At that point, I believe because I've studied the records and the hospital was literally at 100% capacity along with the emergency room that day. So when we decided no for the ventilator, again, I think they finally got it. This family is not going to be convinced for a ventilator. And I think we signed Grace's death certificate to die that day. If we would have agreed to a vent, they would have vented Grace and kept her alive for another few weeks because of the financial gain. Um, so that's circumstantial evidence. You know, the precedex is actual evidence. And, you know, I'm going to, to the extent I can, I'll differenti differentiate between my opinion and circum circumstantial versus fact. So now the, um, the, during the same call, so now we say no to the vent. So now he switches gears and says, we really should start working on nutrition. Uh, Grace is malnourished at this time because they wouldn't let me feed her. Instead of the nurses feeding her, they sedated her instead. Uh, they wouldn't let my daughter Jess feed her. 
He, so he says, we should start working on nutrition. And I, re I recommend a feeding tube. Grace had a pick line in, so she could have had TPN food the entire time. But he said, I really don't want to do that because of the risk of infection. And this will get Grace's um, organs all working. And you know, then we're, we're setting the table to get her out of here in a few days. So we foolishly agreed to that. And you'll see why I say foolishly as it fits into the into the story here. So <clears throat> then he switches gears one more time. And you know, remember, he just got that he, he's recommended feeding tube. He said in the conversation with the feeding tube, Grace had such a good day yesterday. We should work on nutrition. He also said, I think we should move her to a chair out of the bed, you know, because she's doing so, doing so well. But then he flips to, well, what do you guys think? Um, you know, if we if things took a turn for the worse, would you want to resuscitate Grace? And we're thinking, what are you even talking about? We just we're talking about getting Grace out of here. And so he said, Well, you know, if you know, it's impossible, you know, we, you know, we, should we just keep resuscitating her over and over and over? You know, we said, well, of course, you're not going to do that. So now we get to, um, there was a 14-year experienced ICU nurse in charge of Grace's care her last day. Uh, so that 14 years of ICU experience on top of her nursing experience, this is significant uh, when you get into the meat of the story. Jessica said to her, I'm going to take a shower. And she said, well, you can't take a shower here. And Jessica said, well, you guys let my dad take a shower here. And she said, I don't care what we did for your dad. You can't take a shower here. So Jessica, being at least a bit fearful of being kicked out, I was just kicked out three days earlier, decides she'll go home and take a shower. She's gone inside of an hour. She comes back, overhears two doctors and this nurse in the hallway say the family's not going to like that. So she said, what are they going to like? And she said, we had to strap Grace down while you were gone. So she, of course, asked why. And this is the event that got me into the records to see how many times that they referenced Grace had Down syndrome. And so she, she said, uh, because Grace wanted to get out of the bed and go to the bathroom. So just think about if you and I were in the hospital, would we let them strap us down because we want to go to the bathroom and the answer is of course no we would make them do their job but that isn't grace one of the one of the hosts said grace died when she heard this she said grace died a martyr's death because grace was just obedient unto death i mean so she got strapped down they made her poop in the bed being strapped down so now they use that as an excuse to increase the precedence further at 10 48 in the morning they increased the Presidex to 14 times the original dose. So now Grace is really, really groggy. That didn't stop the next sequence of events. So I have this timeline here. I just want to hit this exactly right. At 11, so now Grace is pretty sleepy. At 11.25, they gave her the first dose of lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety bed. You know, she's not anxious at all. Um, at 11.37, they put the feeding tube in. So if nutrition was so important, what's the next step with the feeding tube? They x-ray to make sure that it's in the right place. They waited until 159. So that's two hours and 22 minutes later, they waited to x-ray. So at 159, they x-ray for the feeding tube. At this point, Grace is completely wiped out. Um, she's knocked out like for surgery and she never woke up from that. But in spite of that, at 546, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. At 549, another dose of lorazepam. And at 615, a two milligram dose of morphine is an IV push. So that 29 minutes is what literally killed her because nobody can have that combination of meds in their system and survive at that level. Uh, it, it, it's crazy. And I'm, what put me over the edge specifically with calling Grace is now I've, I've been, I've come to the belief that Grace's death is premeditated murder. And that's significant because that opened the door as to really diving into the why question, which you were, which you were asking me before. And, you know, I thought it was money to start with attenuated care, but now I think it is so deep as to the why she was taken out that it's, it's, uh, it's hard to fathom. So for this to happen, the doctor had to order the meds, the pharmacist had to sign off on the meds, 
the alarm had to be overwritten because the morphine package insert says to not combine those three meds specifically because they're they're contraindicated because they cause death. So you're not supposed to do that. And the 14 year ICU nurse had to deliver the meds. So think, just think through that. You know, it Scott, gets worse. It gets worse. Go ahead, Leslie. Presidex, um, it suppresses breathing, but so does morphine. Correct. That's what they used on my father-in-law. And it literally slows respiration. They say it's palliative, it's, you know, kind care and it's helpful, but um, it's actually making their breathing much, much more difficult, but it also makes them unable to, um, to resist, to fight back. This, and this it's interesting is what they... in my father-in-law's experience, they wouldn't let him get out of bed. <clears throat> they didn't feed him, so they wouldn't let him move. And when we move, we breathe more deeply. All the things that they were doing are the, opposite of what is has been standard care of practice for decades. And so what you're what you're experiencing and sharing with us is not only heartbreaking, it's it's downright outrageous and appalling because it's not that these people didn't know. There's no way that you can argue it's a mistake or an accident or an oversight. This flies in the face of everything that has been considered standard of care for decades. It has to be something more sinister. I think that's the only thing that we can possibly conclude. I, I of course agree. And that's why I'm sharing this story with anybody who will listen, because um, when, when I first saw all of this, I thought Grace is, is the first case where they were caught. Um, and now we've heard many, you know, the story has gotten so big that people are contacting us. And so, I mean, we've heard other stories that are analogous to this, many that are even worse. Um, ultimately, Grace's story gets worse. So now, uh, so that's the second cause of death. First cause of death, the Presidex. Second cause of death, the med combination. By the way, her death certificate, the second cause of death listed is COVID-19 pneumonia. And of course, they list that because then they get a $13,000 death bonus from uh, you and I, the taxpayer, um, Jessica, now sometime after the morphine is delivered, starts feeling grace get cold. The package insert requires the patient to be monitored and the reversal drug bedside. That's the package insert for morphine. None of that happened. After grace was given the morphine, no doctor or nurse stepped foot into the room until after grace died. Jessica felt her coat getting cold. She asked the 14-year ICU nurse to come and take a temp. She wouldn't do it. She said, that's normal. Just cover her with a blanket. At 7.20, Jessica called us panicking. And she said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. This is on a FaceTime call. We're watching Grace lay there. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They won't come in. She estimated 30 nurses in the hallway at this point because of shift change. So Cindy and I start screaming, save our daughter. They holler back to us. She's DNR. Do not resuscitate. And we holler back. She's not DNR. Save our daughter they would not come in the room and save her. We watched Grace die at 727 on FaceTime. During that seven minute window, Jessica ran out in the hall to find out what's going on. And a nurse had the DNR order up on her screen and read it off to her and said, we can't do anything about it. The doctor put a DNR on her. Well, the fact is the DNR was put on Grace illegally, number one, when we said, so even if the DNR was put on by Grace, which it wasn't, but let's just assume that it was put on by Grace. My wife was the medical power of attorney. And when the medical power of attorney says, she's not DNR, save our daughter, that immediately null and voids any DNR that's on the patient, no matter who put it on. Um, so, this is the, so this is the third cause of death. We found out Tom Renz is now taken on our case. He hired a medical malpractice nurse, which I referenced before. And she went through all the records we had. And she said, Scott, you're missing at least a thousand pages. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, that's the way they do it. You'll never get everything. I said, well, can you help write a request to get 
the missing pages. And she said, yeah. So she writes that we got the missing pages, 948 pages missing. On page 853 is where we found the smoking gun, where at 1056 on the morning of Grace's last day is when the doctor entered the DNR order in the computer. And it's so suspicious because remember, they had her on 14 times the original dose of Presidex at 1048, eight minutes afterward, they put the DNR order in. Then, you know, since she didn't get killed by the Presidex and the and the uh, lorazepam, now let's let's do the feeding tube. Let's see if we can take this special girl out with the feeding tube. Well, that didn't do it. So they finally x-ray her two and a half hours later. And so now she's knocked out, but she's not dead. And then they give her, you know, the lorazepam twice, the morphine. I mean, you can't make it up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so two more facts I'll just point out, and then you can ask some more questions. But the two facts are when our, our pastor met us there, he walked uh, Cindy out in a wheelchair. I stayed in the car because I had COVID. But one of the nurses, this is what gave us the clue there were shenanigans going on. One of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart, and she leaned down and said to my wife, um, me and several nurses don't think Grace should have died today. Uh, later on that night, Jessica told us there was an armed guard posted outside the room. And I say posted with confidence because after Grace died, Jessica crawled in bed with her to hold her until Cindy got there. And the armed guard stood outside and watched her the entire time from the nurse's window. We had guards posted outside my father-in-law's as well. I bet if we um, had a medical malpractice practitioner like you have, we would get far more documentation about it. And what's interesting is our kidney dialysis company hasn't um, released the records to us. They're asking for all sorts of things. It's very, very interesting. Um, Scott, it is just, you know, my heart goes out to you. I am so very, very sorry for your loss. Thank um, you, it is, it is, it's hard to even stomach the idea that we live in a world like this, the one that we live in today, that there are human beings. I mean, are they even human who can conduct themselves in this way, who can, um, you know, turn a deaf ear to the pleadings of parents whose child is suffering in a bed in a hospital who can literally administer, I mean, no one ever could possibly conclude that it's acceptable to take more and more and more of a drug. Whenever you take a drug, you space it out by hours at the least, right? I mean, sometimes it's twice a day or every six hours or something like that, but not every 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something. I mean, the, the absurdity of this story, the brazenness of it, I think is so, so crystal clear. It is a shot across the bow for every American who cares about themselves and their families. And I really hope that sharing the story is going to help many more wake up to the reality of what we face in this country. What we're experiencing as a nation isn't about public health. I've said this since the very beginning. COVID is not about public health. Lockdowns are not about public health. Um, social distancing or whatever, I call it physical distancing usually, masking, none of this stuff is about public health. It is about right. an agenda. And I believe part of it is genocidal, like you say, but I either another part of it's financial. And those things too tie in, tie in together because essentially Western civilization is broke and they can't kick the debt can down the street any further. That's and right. so one of the best ways to resolve that sort of conundrum they find themselves in because they've created it, it's, it's of their own creation. They've been the ones who've been borrowing with no intention of ever repaying, who've been making promises to the electorate, which they've never intended to keep and who just keep spending and spending and spending and essentially stealing from all of us, right? They're robbing us blind. Um, this is such an issue in the Western nations, this indebtedness and the, um, the financial commitments in the, in the terms of, or in the form of pensions and public promises that there's no way that they will ever get out of them. And one of the solutions it would seem based on what we're experiencing in the, in the actual real world in our lives is to get rid of the elderly. Um, and then to also get rid of the others who are non-productive as they would deem a, a young person with, with Down syndrome. So 
you know, I'm just heartbroken about it. But I guess where I really want to go and maybe um, wrap up here is how has this changed you? How has it changed your perspective on our country? And what is it motivated to you to do? What are your, your goals now from sharing this story? What do you hope for? So just to put an exclamation point on the money, um, so there is a money component to this and it's not paying, the hospitals are just the conduit, but the 39% of our federal deficit or our federal budget annually is to fund the disabled and the elderly. So, I mean, it is clearly, it's a financial motivation, but I think that's only one of the pieces because if you study Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, you see that people without God have to figure out how to control the population. God said, be fruitful and multiply, and he didn't do an am amendment to the Bible. So, you know, God's got this. But what's happened is that um, this has become my life. Uh, what do I hope? I hope that this story can be used to wake people up, uh, both physically and spiritually. Um, you know, where does it go? Um, it's hard to know. God has opened up uh, so many doors. It's unbelievable. You know, Tom Renz is a door that that he opened up. And Tom convinced me personally to do the lawsuit to use Grace's case as a national test case. We're not after any money here. Um, but it made sense because he said this is the fastest way we can stop this behavior in our society. And in, I don't know that it's the fastest way, but it is a way. We're not putting all of our eggs in, in that basket, but I think it, it makes sense to do, um, to have a justice phase of Grace's campaign, where this is really gone, is to see how dark things really are. And so a few weeks ago, I learned of, of a term uh, that, that I'd like to share and end with called the banality of evil. And that really has helped me frame what's going on here. So the banality of evil means the commonplace evil. So evil is so common that we don't even recognize it. So take the two classes of people that we've been talking about, and then we're going to add a third class in. So the disabled and the elderly. What happens when a young person gets pregnant? The doctor encourages her to get an amnio. If the amnio shows something negative, the doctor encourages an abortion. That has become the standard of care. And it's so normal that people don't even think about it. So that's the banality of evil, commonplace evil. What do we do with the elderly? You know, so when I was a kid, most elderly people were taken care of by their kids. Now, most are put in nursing homes. That's the banality of evil. So now we just kind of throw those two pieces of society away. So then now when they see, okay, this is our opportunity with COVID to implement what we've been working on for, for five decades now, it's real easy. You know, so, you know, so the hospital people who took care of Grace, did they just see her as a useless eater? Because, well, she's disabled anyway. I mean, she's not a productive member of society. She's just a useless eater. You know, that would be a mindset that would make what they did very easy to do. Uh, then the third group that I would throw in, which, you know, the I had said that the most the most surprising thing I learned with all of this is how corrupt our government is. The second most surprising thing is how stupid our population is. But that's the banality of evil, too. The school system has taken over the primary role that the parents used to have. And so they have trained out critical thinking. Young people do not know how to critical think. So they're like zombies. So when their government tells them to get the jab, they just go get the jab. You know, it's, it's insanity. Uh, so that's the banality of evil. And so that's that's where this research is going now, where I see it as, as this is so bad um, that you know, it's, you, you, there's not enough hours in a day to, to work on this. Now, Scott, you mentioned that you're not going for damages in the lawsuit or not going for money. So it, it seems to me, I mean, I can understand why you wouldn't want to... Um, use the lawsuit to sort of, you know, strike it rich. I understand that. I mean, there is no 
price that can be put on your daughter's head. But our system understands money and our system is um, handicapped to some extent by money. And so I'm just wondering, you know, when they have to pay out, that's what usually what, what often makes them actually sit up and, and take notice of something. What is your, without going into too much detail, because of course you can't give away your legal strategy, but what is your objective with the lawsuit and why not go for some kind of monetary um, impact just because of the fact that it would have a huge impact on the hospital potentially? So yeah, you're right about the legal strategy. They're working on the legal strategy right now. And I, you know, I have some insight as to it, but I don't want to go through that just because it would jeopardize what we're working on. But you know, I believe there's going to be a substantial amount of amount of money paid out. What I'm saying specifically is that we're not going to take any of it personally. We're going to plow it back in because um, as Tom has said, there's thousands of lawsuits that need to be filed. And you know, so the damages from Grace's case will help a lot more people uh, versus us just personally profiting from it. I mean, that we don't have any interest in, in that. And so that's what I've been making clear. And so thanks for thanks for asking that follow-up question. Great. Scott, is there anything, um, any message that you have for our viewers before we close? Well, it, the the end game is already known. And it's just a matter of whose team you want to be on. So uh, we know this is a spiritual battle. That's otherwise it can't be at this this level. And we also know God wins in the end. And so I would tell everybody that um, you know whose whose team do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the winning team, or do you want to go down with the ship? And um, so I mean, this story can have people. Uh, wake up and realize that God is real. He wins this. Uh, you know, he, Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead so that um, people can be with God eternally. And that's, you know, I, I sure hope that that happens by people hearing Grace's story. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Scott. I just want to um, really honor you for standing up and speaking out. So many people would actually, I think, be um, cowed by the system being so brazen in its attacks on their family. And they might just duck their heads and go away. What happened to your daughter, daughter is horrific. And this kind of thing actually is happening with much more regularity than people realize. Even before COVID, children who were unvaccinated, um, if they spiked a fever, there was a case in Arizona where uh, CPS, Child Protective Services, came and broke down the door of the family's home at 1.30 in the morning and kidnapped the children from the parents for the crime of not taking the two and a half year old to the hospital because the child's fever broke. And the mother and father de determined that there was no reason to go to the hospital because the child was fine. But CPS sought it necessary to break down the door at 1.30 in the morning and take these children, literally kidnap them. There's another story of a family in Northern Idaho um, the woman gave birth and everything was fine for a few days in the hospital and they were in the hospital because she had cerebral palsy and they just wanted to make sure everything was okay. On the final day that they were supposed to leave in the morning, the baby, the parents were offered hepatitis B vaccine for their child. They refused and the hospital called CPS and kidnapped the baby, newborn baby. Oh, gosh. Yes. Um, there, there are cases like this all over the country. And I'm sharing it not to take anything away from what you've experienced and what Grace experienced in all of its horror, but for people to understand that this banality of evil is really commonplace today, that there are people who will vaccinate your children against your expressed wishes. There are people who will take your children from you just because they have a fever and for some reason that makes them more, more at risk if they're not vaccinated. This is insanity. These are people who have been so summarily brainwashed, they have lost any connection to their inner compass, their heart. They've lost any connection to anything bigger than themselves, to God. And it's incumbent upon all of us to educate ourselves about what's really going on so that we can stand together. Because if you had more people standing with you at that hospital, maybe perhaps the outcome would have been different. Um, you know, that's a pure speculation. But we do know that when hundreds or thousands of people show up and protest what hospitals are doing, 
the hospitals react. I just want everybody to go to ouramazinggrace.net to learn more about the story, to support the Sharas. I hope I said that right that time. You did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and also to educate yourselves about medical kidnap and what is really going on in this country because it is a scourge on our society and it must be stopped. And it's only going to stop when millions of Americans who have um, a heart and are mildly awake and are concerned about fairness, integrity, decency, justice, honor, stand up and demand that it cease. That's the only thing that's going to change things. So Scott, thank you so much for being with us here today and sharing your story. And you know, if there's anything else that I can do to help support you in your mission, please just let us know. Oh, thanks, Leslie. This was fantastic. You did a great job interviewing. It didn't take it all away from Grace's case. What you did, you framed it. You did a great job framing it. And, you know, something that every single person can do is when you get done listening to this podcast, just share it with one other person. That simple task, just do one, that one thing. And at least we get one more person that is in the fold and hears this message. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's been, um, like I say, a pleasure and an honor being with you. Um, I'll, I'll hopefully speak to you very soon. All right. Thank you, Leslie. Bye-bye, Scott.